Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. What the science says is that religious participation and church involvement have profoundly positive impacts on people's personal health and therefore in the aggregate on our public health. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About. I'm Mariana Orlandi. I'm the Associate Director of the Austin Institute. And with me today is a guest we've already had, and you've heard from him on this show, on another show, is my Executive Director, Dr. Kevin Stewart. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. And if I may, I would call you Kevin for this episode. It's just going to make things a lot easier for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Today, we want to talk about some recent activities and pretty important appearances that you, Kevin, but on behalf of the Austin Institute, did in front of the Texas legislatures and in particular in front of the State Affairs Committee, both at the Senate and at the House, with reference to two different bills being discussed during the session. So what I would like you to ask, first of all, is if you could tell us how and why you can testify for bills in Texas, on behalf of whom, and what is special about Texas, or as I learned to be the case about God's country. That's right. So, yes, thanks, Mariana. It's a pleasure to be back on and a pleasure to talk about these issues. So I have been going to the legislature and meeting with legislators to offer the resources of the Austin Institute on legislation as it affects the family so that they are armed with good quality science and social science. Now we're getting from the issue of meeting with them to offer these kind of in the initial stages as legislation is written to testifying as to what the facts actually are as the legislation is heard publicly. So this is on the record. Now there are two forms of testimony that can be heard in a committee. One is called invited testimony. That usually happens first after a bill is announced or read and argued for by the author. And that testimony is invited either by the author of the bill or the committee chairman or one of the members of the committee. And then there's a second kind of testimony, and that's public testimony. So anyone from anywhere can sign up and have their voice heard on these matters. And I think part of what Mariana is referring to is that if you don't know this about the Texas Capitol, it's this huge, beautiful building. It's actually bigger than the U.S. Capitol because everything's bigger in Texas, but it really is your building. If you're a Texan, this is your building. And they treat it like that, which is to say that there is a There's a metal detector that you go through like a normal security thing. But once you're through that, there is not, unless you've set up a tour, there's not going to be a minder. There's not going to be a security guard making sure you only go into certain places and not others. No, you just roam the building at that point. And if you want to speak to a representative or a senator, you can stop in their office. They'll probably ask that you make an appointment. But you can just stop in their office to have your voice be heard, to register your view on a bill. Or, as we did, you can go to one of the Senate or House hearing chambers and sign up. There are little stations with iPad things, and you type in some information about yourself, and you can sign up 
to be heard as a witness, to make your voice heard on legislation. And I think it's just one of the great features of Texas. The attitude of the senators and representatives really is, this is your house that they work in, and they're there to be available to you because these laws cover all of us. Yeah, you really spoke the truth because that's the feeling that even I had as a foreigner who's just recently moved to this state and still felt that that was a place where your voice can really be heard. So what I would like to ask before we get to the specific bills is also what does the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture testify on? Like, what is the role that an NGO can have in this kind of hearings? And what is the purpose for a committee to have? So one of the things to know about our legislators is that they are citizen legislators. Our legislature meets every other year for about five months. And so all of these legislators have other jobs. And most of those jobs do not make them experts on science and social science. But they need that expertise as they pass laws. You know, that expertise can help them. And so a big part of what the Austin Institute is down there to do is to help convey to them the expertise, accurate, good quality science and social science as it relates to bills on the family. So there are a whole lot of bills that we won't have any say on, but we will want to make sure they have the right data on issues as they touch upon the family. Now, that said, there are three ways to be involved on any particular piece of legislation. You can speak for it, you can speak against it, or you can be neutral and simply speak on. Which is what you do, right? That's right. As what a, we do, if I may. That's yeah. right. As a 501c3 organization, so a nonprofit organization, our sweet spot is not to tell the legislatures how they ought to vote, but simply to make them, to have the credibility by all of them, to make them aware. Because we come there saying, I'm not telling you how to vote but I want to make you aware of what the science and the social science say. There are great advocacy organizations down at the Capitol that I would recommend people check out, organizations like Texas Values, that will advocate on behalf of these issues. And we come in kind of alongside or behind some of these organizations with the data and the research and the studies. And that's really our role there. We are not, the Austin Institute has never been an advocacy organization. We are not down there to tell the senators and representatives. In fact, I explicitly said in one of my testimonies that I'm not here to tell you how to vote. I'm here to tell you what the science actually says. Yeah, so we want to go to that. And then we will also have clips to your testimonies linked to this episode. But let me start by saying this. One more reason to call it God's country is that the first bill that called for your intervention was HB 1239 by Congressman Sanford. But, you know, the name of the bill might not explain what the bill was trying to do. So pretending I did not read that bill. What was that bill about? Right. So 1239, HB 1239 by Representative Sanford categorizes religious houses of worship, churches, separately in and exempts them from shutdown orders. So like the shutdown orders that we've lived through in, um, in the last year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And so my testimony on this uh, was related to the fact of what the science says about religious involvement and church attendance. So 
So what does it say? So here's the thing, right? Last year during the, especially during the heights of the pandemic or within the last year, at the heights of the pandemic, there were shutdown orders that treated places that people tended to gather, such as uh, shops, restaurants, bars, even outdoor parks and churches, as if they were all the same, right? They would apply a general rule across these. But what I wanted to make sure our representatives were aware of is that these are not, in fact, all the same. That what the science says is that religious participation and church involvement have profoundly positive impacts on people's personal health and therefore in the aggregate on our public health. And so that as they consider how to draw prudent lines, neither throwing caution totally to the wind and just doing anything and everything as if there were no pandemic nor completely isolating oneself and pretending there's no cost involved there, right? Because the the evidence is already emerging that the costs of isolation are tremendous. And so the course of prudence, we've been focusing a lot in the last year on prudence around here at the Institute. The course of prudence is to weigh the risks, the payoffs and the burdens to make choices about what risks are worth taking. And so as they went through that deliberation for whether churches are such a significant benefit to people, both personally and as a matter of public health, that they should be treated differently and that risk calculus should be regarded separately. I wanted to make them aware that actually science has something to say on this. Yeah. And you gave a brilliant testimony that in just like in two minutes, you made a list of all the reasons why, you know, places of worship in general are good for your health. Could you like sort of in the same way, list them for our audience here? Yeah, so I'll go off the top of my mind and mm-hmm. I won't get all of them, but with the links to the testimony, yeah, we'll have all yeah. of them. I had notes for that. But they include mental health benefits, like people report greater general happiness, more hope, more social capital, more connectedness, more integration, that sort of thing. And then also, I mean, these are where it get it gets really amazing with physical health things. So... People's cholesterol is lower when they attend church. There's lower incidence of heart disease. There's lower incidence of cancer. Strokes, um, I remember. And strokes. And even when people have cancer and stroke, their recovery time is faster when they attend church. There's lower incidence of smoking, lower incidence of domestic violence, lower incidence of drug abuse, lower incidence of arrest. So in just about every way, even the immune system. So there's even yeah. a study. So that shows in a way, if I may, Kevin, it, it's not that you advocate in this case for being religious. The goal here is if the ratio alleges, so the reason you have a law that closes down buildings is to protect general health, you're actually doing something against it. Is that correct? That's right. So that's not to say the churches don't need to take some sensible precautions when worshiping, but it is to say that the evidence we have, and I was just adding to that, I mean, particularly important in a pandemic like this is that immune function is greater in people who regularly attend church. You know, it's particularly important to understand the strong positive health impacts that if you're trying in the overall to get to the point where we maximize health, where we get the most protection with the most benefit for that protection, right? So minimize the risks in ways that get us to maximum benefit. Then you have to take into account the massive benefits and the huge body of science and social science research that demonstrates these massive benefits to those who attend church. 
Yeah, uh, and we'll regularly. have a link maybe also to some of the studies in this we can. episode. Sure. We can link to that. We usually, you know, if you subscribe to our newsletter, usually these kind of studies is what we send out to the people that follow us and that follow what we do. So this bill applies to disasters in general. And just to read, it's a prohibition on closing places of worship. A government agency or public official may not issue an order that closes or has the effect of closing places of worship in the state or in a geographic area of state. So that's HB 1239. Yeah, I think one more thing to add there is there's one additional study that's really important on this issue. And that one showed that someone might object and say, well, look, in these pandemic conditions, you can still worship God from home, connecting online and watching the worship service there and, and singing along and things like that. You can increase Bible study and increase prayer time. And it's true that people did do a lot of those things during the pandemic, and they did help. The evidence says that. But there was a study done last summer by one of our colleagues at Harvard, and it showed that even doing all of those things does not replace the full value for personal and public health achieved by having people worship in person. So even doing all the substitutes, they don't fully substitute. And that's a really important point. And at least for now, that doesn't seem to be research saying that the time spent in a mall makes you happier than the one you spend buying online. Right. Not like not like going to church. Okay. So we'll wait for that social science. If they can produce it though, right? They say if that can be collected, that kind of science, that could be a good reason not to shut down malls as well. Second thing, so you testified, I said, you know, I thought in Cauda Venenum, like poison in the tail, you testified on the other bill, very heated one, which is SB29. Which one is that? So SB29... The author is Senator Charles Perry, requires that athletes in schools in the interscholastic leagues, right? So the elementary, middle, and high school athletics in the state of Texas compete in the division of the sex on indicated on their birth certificate. So if you are born a male, you compete in the male division. If you were born a female, you compete in the female division, regardless of your current gender identity. So this, as you may imagine, has been somewhat controversial. Yeah, I can imagine. And I think you you did touch on a similar topic during one of our previous episodes. Yes, we knew this issue was coming and we knew that we would be a part of the discussion contributing science because there's a lot of misunderstanding here. In fact, I was very fortified in our effort by attending the testimony at the Senate State Affairs Committee in person because there was a lot of junk science on display. When you say junk science, what do you mean? So what is the issue with this bill? What does it prohibit? What is the goal? What is the benefit? Right. So the benefit is, or the problem is really this, right? Human beings come, broadly speaking, in two stripes, male and female. These are morally equal, of course. But physically, nature endows men with advantages that make competition between men and women, physical competition between men and women, inherently unfair. Thanks for adding physical, because yeah. I don't think that the other one. Oh, no, no, look, yeah. you, you know, when it comes <laughs> oh, to intellectual right, yeah. okay. and other forms of competition, our society is rapidly showing that women do more than just hold their own. They win. There's no doubt about it. But when it comes to physical competition, we're bumping up against biology here. And that's really the core problem. Uh, we live in a society that 
is focused on equality for long mistreated women. And so we want there to be no relevant difference in any category. But nature is being very stubborn here. And the data bears that out. So, for example, men are on average five inches taller. They did not do anything to earn being five inches taller. It's just a fact that men are on average five inches taller. They have bigger bones. They have greater bone density. They have greater muscle mass. They have greater muscle density. They have more upper body strength. They have more torque strength. They have greater speed. They have increased agility. Those physical traits, which again are unearned, they just come with the territory, are unfair advantages in contests of physical strength, speed, and skill. So having teams that make no difference based on sex is a disadvantage for women. It's a strong disadvantage for women. There have been other states. So this touches on one of the two really bad arguments that I heard sitting in the Senate committee chamber opposed to this legislation. One of those was that this is a solution in search of a problem. It's not a solution in search of a problem, right? The time to solve the problem is before it's a huge catastrophic mess. And in other states, they've already had this situation become a huge mess. So for example, in Connecticut, two biological males who are transgender competed in 2019 in the state track and field events, and they racked up something like 15 state championships, finishing number one and number two in multiple events. Now, given everything I just said about the male physical differences, this should be utterly unsurprising, right? It should be utterly unsurprising that there is, on average, a performance gap, depending on the sport, of 10% to 50%. And that was from a 2020 study. It should be utterly unsurprising that, I mean, here are a couple of quick stats. Between the world record holding male in the 100 meter dash, Usain Bolt, and the world record holding female in the 100 meter dash, Flojo, there are 9,000 males. The current 100 meter Olympic champion for females is Lane Thompson. And her time is slower than the 14-year-old male record holder. At 400 meters, Allison Felix is the current female world champion. So in a way, if I may, you know, like these are the data. So if we base our teams on the idea that we are, you know, we choose our gender and it's, it's all about a social construct, of course, we can have great results and great athletes, but biological female will be a disadvantage. They would rarely get a scholarship for their results in an athletic team. They will rarely become world champions. And so in a way, this is going against equality. Yeah. I mean, at a minimum, what you can say is in the first instance, the data strongly support the conventional division in sporting events between male competition and female competition. We can additionally say that head-to-head competition in any event where size, speed, and strength are advantages, males will have an unfair advantage in those events. And of course, that covers most athletics. We can also say it's highly probable that if mixing the sexes, if allowing biological males to compete in the female division has become a problem in a small place like Connecticut, it's at an elite level going to become a much bigger problem 
in a state like Texas because you have many fewer people in Connecticut, but still only one state champion. In Texas, you have many, many more people, but still only one state champion. And so you're going to have many more instances of trans athletes in Texas. So this is going to, just because it's not a huge problem now, does not mean that we can just ignore what the data says. It's very likely to become a big problem for women and a big problem for the aspirations of girls in sports. I mean, I think particularly of the podcast episode we had with the Craycrafts of how these girls have worked for much of their lives to not only get excellent grades and be great students, but also to be great sporting competitors. And it's really unfair to them to deprive them of the opportunities that are supposed to be accorded to females. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if I may, you know, for the female that might be listening that are worried that they cannot compete in mixed teams, no, there is an exception. So if a school doesn't have a female team for specific sports, female are welcome to join the male team. The problem, because it doesn't make anybody worse off to be, you know, you know, you are a disadvantage and you can't compete with people that are stronger than you. That's up to you to choose. It's the opposite that becomes an unfair and unjust measure. We have seen this a bit, particularly the, the most prominent and sort of obvious example is football. There are no girls football teams at Texas high schools. They are technically open in that sense. They are almost all boys. But we have seen the occasional female player, usually in the position of a kicker. I see. Yeah, what I wanted to say is that I don't want to be the pessimistic here, but there is a slippery slope argument that comes to mind because I am afraid that if these kind of the science that you just mentioned doesn't get, if people do not consider this science and we have, we start having this intersex, intergender teams everywhere, there is a way to make everybody equal, which is prevent male growth from a very early age, make men less strong, make their bones smaller so that they can actually compete like women. But this kind of, this sounds like an aggression on human, because we can at this point and time and age, we can change even our biology. It just sounds like a very risky thing. So I'm afraid that things will go in either like in one direction or the other. Yeah. And ultimately, it's less effective than people might think. So we were talking some before about the junk science and, and fake science claims. So one of the claims I heard in the Senate chamber repeated over and over by witnesses was that science says there's no athletic advantage to those, especially, say, biological males competing who identify as female competing especially after they've undergone cross-sex hormone therapy. That is simply not what the science says. There was a study published as recently as last year that showed that even if puberty blockers are undertaken early and cross-sex hormones done during puberty, and even if gonadectomy, so this is where they remove the sex organ. Can we explain to our audience that this means stopping puberty? Right. Very early. Take it as a very genuine case of gender dysphoria and distress. This person is experiencing an ill fit between their own psychology and the body that they have. And so one of the ways of treating this is to prevent puberty. They give drugs that stop it, stop puberty from onset. And then to do cross-sex, so they give a male lots of 
female hormone hormones to alter the hormone. So you're balance. saying that what the study shows, the one that you were mentioning, it shows that even if you do this, which we should agree that this is a good thing, but even if you do this, still the performance would be different. Yeah. Even if you're, that's right. Even if you agree hypothetically that that's a good course of action and that's controversial. I don't, for example, agree that that's a good course of action. I don't think the science justifies that. But if you did, right? We grant as much as we can to one's interlocutor. It still doesn't erase the athletic advantage that the biological males, those born male, still tend to get close to male height, still tend to have closer to typical male strength and bone density, which means they're going to have significant athletic advantages. So even granting as much as possible out of argumentative charity to those opposed to the bill it's still not scientifically accurate to say there's no athletic advantage. Like even in the most aggressive cases where they blocked puberty, where they've undergone cross-sex hormones and even had their sex organs removed, even under those circumstances, there's still an advantage for those born male in athletic competitions. Well, thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you also for bringing the social science to the Texas legislature, because I think we are, this is one of the reasons we exist for this science to be known by the people and by those that make decisions for us. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for being on the show. Before we leave, I think that it could be also helpful to mention that we have a good lecture that is probably online by now on our YouTube channel on sexual differences. And so why biology matters and what biology and evolution say about sex. You can go on our YouTube channel and look for that. Or you can also listen to some of the other episodes of this podcast, the one that was mentioned by KCraft, and then also to the other podcast that the Austin Institute has, which is Tax Ledge. There are episodes on how the legislature works and about the testimony and the specific bills. So in case you're interested, Dr. Stewart, Kevin, is on those and is telling you more details about these things on that show. Is that all? That's right. Yeah. If you want more information on the subject matter we covered today, there are longer episodes available on TextLedge with bill numbers and whom to contact and all of that sort of stuff. So go on over there and listen. Awesome. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you for listening. And till next time. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.